Good morning. We are indeed on the last message of part A of Corinthians. And uh, I don't know when we'll get to part B. We're going into Easter, we're going to do Palm Sunday Easter, and I'm thinking and praying about what comes right after Easter, so you can be in prayer about that for the next week, while this week uh, I'm actually going to a pastor's conference uh, together for the gospel in Atlanta this week, and uh, it's always a very energizing time, and just I'm looking forward to it, and it's also actually spring in Louisville, Um, (laughs) so I'm looking forward to that too. And uh, yeah, so it's going to be a good week, and I'm just going to be taking time to just uh, pray, especially about what we do right after Easter, and uh, perhaps coming back to Corinthians uh, a little bit later, maybe in the summer even. Um, Let's just pray before we begin. Father God, thank you for uh, this time together to worship and fellowship together. We thank you for your word, and uh, that this is a church, uh, as it says in our little phrase on our letterhead, standing on the word of God, that the word of God is our cornerstone. It's our foundation. It's where we stand. And so, Lord, as we uh, look into your word now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and our hearts to what you would teach us, and uh, that it would uh, illuminate uh, the things that are going on in our hearts in a way that uh, cause us to uh, come to you and come to your cross once again uh, in a new way. And uh, seeking your transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through this series on Corinthians, uh, named after the city Corinth and the church that's in Corinth that Paul founded. And the issue with Corinth is not unlike, as we've discovered over the last nine sermons, not unlike us today. It was a multicultural church in a multicultural city. It was surrounded by Roman Uh, paganism and uh, worship of all sorts and different philosophies and it had schools and universities and it had um, uh, philosophers and and uh, people would debate in the marketplace about uh, different philosophies and truths and and uh, the church in Corinth that Paul had founded was basically steeped in this culture and uh, they had written a letter that we don't have they had written a letter to the apostle Paul about a year or so after he had left the city And they had written them a bunch of questions about things that they had sort of lost their way on and they were getting divided on. What do, you know, you taught us all these things, but what do we do about marriage? What do we do about the Jewish traditions? What do we, uh, you know, what do we do with our relationships? What do we do with work? You know, some of us are slaves. Are we free from that? And and they had all these different questions. And one of the questions they had was, was idols. And we started this about three weeks ago. You remember that burning question that we all had, meat eaten at, uh, that was blessed at an idol, and what do we do if we're presented with meat that somebody had offered at an idol? And I know we struggle with that all the time, and, uh, <laughs> but we dealt, with, we dealt with what the root, the foundation that Paul was getting to was that, yes, we keep circling back to this foundation stone of liberty. Yes, you are free. Christ has set you free, but that foundation stone has to line up with other things. And in that case, it was love that Paul said, if you love your brothers and sisters and they struggle with that pagan culture, then don't flaunt your freedom in front of them, right? Don't, don't eat at the, at the feasts and don't eat this meat that's been blessed at idols if they know that, if it's going to cause them to struggle. And so, so Paul agreed that you're free, but make sure that your freedom is bounded by love. And then Paul went into talking more about this liberty, talked about the rights. They said, we had all these rights to do this and live this way. And, and you remember, in, and this was last week in chapter 9, Paul said, 
Yeah, you are free to live, that you do have a lot of rights, but let me be an example to you. Look at all the rights I have. Don't I have the right to be married? You know, don't I have the right to be paid for what I do? Don't I have a right to share in the blessings of the, of the work that I do? Um, but I lay down my rights. I set aside my liberty in order that I might win anyone for the gospel. So I will become anything to anyone, those under the law, the weak, the strong, those not under the law, in order to win them for the gospel. So I agree, you have liberty, you have rights, but don't go claiming your rights when you can set them aside as Christ did. Humble yourself and set your rights aside in order to save people. But Paul's not done this idol thing. This is where I'm getting to. Paul's not done this idol thing. They've still asked the question, but what about the idols? And so Paul's spent all this time setting up this issue of freedom and liberty and how to frame it in love and your rights and all that stuff. But he still has to answer the question, bottom line, what do we do about idols? And what is idolatry? And it's interesting where Paul goes. And if you have this in the city in Corinth, I have a slide of it here. You have the city in Corinth. This is a, obviously a re, you know, recreated um, uh, but it was a city, typical Roman city, amphitheater, you see all that stuff there, and then the temples, and the temples were just part of the culture. And so when we think of idol worship, we think of things like statues. We think of, uh, you know, a big statue to Zeus or whatever. Uh, we have that somewhere. Uh, or yeah, there's the temple, but yeah, we have big statues. You know, there's Zeus, and then we have, you know, little statues that might be on the street corner, and then these other Roman guys, that's, um, I can't remember who that is, and that's someone, who knows, they had about a thousand of them. Anyway, but you had these, you had these different shrines and these different statues in the city, and people would go, and they'd be worshiping at them, and they would be feasting at them, and they would actually literally worship at an idol. And, and so that's what we think of when we think of idolatry. But Paul, when he answers this question in chapter 10, it's interesting to see how he deals with this issue of idolatry in terms of the church. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 10, and then 14 to 22. And there's, we know that idolatry is more than just stone carvings. And Paul and the Corinthians knew that too. And so when we think about idolatry and we think about how we deal with idolatry in our life, we have to see what Paul says about it in 1 Corinthians 10 and how he then says in an alternative to idolatry what should the christians be doing as an alternative to idolatry let's look at the text first corinthians 10 1 to 10 for i do not want you to be unaware brothers that your fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of, their, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. 
Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul now is finally dealing head-on with this issue of idols in answer to the questions the Corinthians asked. And And if you sort of unpack what Paul is saying here, you start to answer the question, what is idolatry to God? And what is idolatry in Paul's mind that he's trying to get across to the church in Corinth? As was just read earlier um, by Allison, the fact that we are commanded to not have any gods before God, and how Paul unpacks that then in terms of the people of Israel. First of all, in verse 6, he says, idolatry is evil, so we're not to desire evil as the, as the Israelites did. The Israelites were the example that were set here that Paul is using. And in verse 7, he says, don't lead an, adul- an, an uh, adulterous life or an idolatrous life. Uh, and God clarifies then what it is. And so there's three things here, specifically four things, that Paul outlines of what idolatry is. He says, sitting down to eat and drink and rising to play. And he's referring to Exodus 32, 6, where they built the golden calf and then they started feasting and then they partied basically around this, this golden calf. And Paul is saying that the idolatry of the Israelites was this sort of surf- serving their selfish appetites. Right? And this was a very real reality for the Corinthians in this time because that's what idol worship was. It was going out to a feast, getting involved in a party, getting drunk, and everything that you can expect that happens after a big feast and a big drunk uh, and, and partying all night. And so he says, first of all, idolatry here as it's outlined by, the, uh, by Israel is the sitting down to eat and drink and then rising to play. It's this attitude of self-indulgence. That the people just felt, I can consume and I can eat and I can drink and I can play and that is my life. That is my God. Self-serving. But then in verse 8, he clarifies even more. He says we must not engage in sexual immorality. So again, this is linked to the feast. The immorality of this fashion was a big part of the Roman temple worship and the feasting. And Paul, but I mean, Paul already relayed that foundation stone on purity. Uh, you remember back in chapter 5 and 6. Uh, but he's expecting that purity now of Israel and the church. In other words, again, this self-indulgence, this self-serving, uh, this worshiping of ourselves uh, in this way is an idolatry that Israel was guilty of. Or verse 9, he's still talking about idolatry and the, the idolatrous nature of Israel. He says, we must not put Christ to the test. Well, how is that idolatry? How, how did they do that? By demanding what they craved. Israel in the wilderness craved the life that they had left behind and they demanded it of God. And Paul's reference to this is the time that they complained for the better food that they had and the better houses they had and the better stuff that they had in Egypt. They were better off in Egypt and God was leaving them out in the desert and God's plan for their life was not a good plan. Egypt was better. They had a better plan for their life. And if you want to look in Psalm 78, 18 and forward, it talks about this. It illuminates this time of Israel and how they turned against God and set themselves up as having a better plan than God did. It says in in Psalm 78, it says, They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? And he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. 
Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? And therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath, and a fire was kindled against Jacob. Another word for Israel. And his anger rose against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. And so Paul is saying here, when he, like, why would he say that? He's unpacking this. He's saying the idolatry of Israel is that they set themselves up as knowing better than God. They started to say, God, your plan for our lives is not as good as the plan we would have. And so they set themselves on the throne and they put their will in the place of God's will. And Paul says that's idolatry. Or he clarifies even more beyond testing Christ. He says in verse 10, he says, nor grumble as some of them did. It's a form of idolatry. The grumbling of Israel, Paul is comparing to idolatry. To complain against God, to be bitter about circumstances, is a form of idolatry. It's denying the goodness of God. You know, it's the same as idolizing your own preferences over God. You're saying, what I choose for my life is better than what God chooses for my life. So, God, I don't want you on the throne. I want to be on the throne. I want my preferences, not yours. I want what I think is right for me. I don't want what you think is right for me. And so all of these things, when Paul gets into this teaching on idolatry, he spells out all these things about Israel. He says they, they craved these things, and they grumbled against me, and they uh, you know, started this self-serving lifestyle that they, and the immorality that they got engaged in. All of these things together are all forms of idolatry. And so when we think about this issue of idolatry as Christians, as a church, we have to think about what it is that is really idolatry. It's not just a big statue of Zeus, you know. We don't go up to the temple of Aphrodite and, you know, or the temple of Apollo and, you know, we, you know, don't bow in front of anything, uh, you know, to, to worship in that way. I mean, you know, maybe our TV sets when Peyton Manning is playing or something like that. Um, you know, he's worthy of some worship. Um, you know, maybe the Leafs when they finally win. But, you know, <laughs> we, we don't worship in that way. But I mean, I say it in jest, but then we find things in our life that we start to put in the place of God. You know, maybe we have a really nice old car in the garage that we go out, you know, and we shine it up with the wax, you know, and you're out there re-waxing and re-shining that car, you know, every Saturday, you know, taking care of that 57 Chev or whatever it is, you know, or maybe you're a Ford person, you know, and you got the Mustang in the garage, right? So this idea that there are things that we can replace God with or that we can put ourselves in the place of God. And so idolatry then, gleaning from these examples, encompasses more than what we immediately think of than just bowing before a statue or believing that there's powers out there in a, in a crystal or something. Idolatry is serving our selfish appetites. It's feasting and consuming and pursuing temporary pleasures. Philippians 3 basically builds on this uh, Paul says in Philippians to the people uh, who are living their life this way of self-indulgence, he says, their end is destruction and their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. And so there's this attitude where the glory is in our appetites. The glory is in the pursuit of the things that we desire, right? And our minds are set on the created things, on the things of the world rather than the things of God. Or secondly, idolatry is putting our cravings for the world ahead of God. To desire anything created more than God is idolatry. Or idolatry is rising up in rebellion against God, testing his goodness and wisdom, and, and rebelling against God and his sovereignty and saying, I have a better, I'm better off in control than God is. That's idolatry. That's idolizing ourselves and our own wisdom. 
Or substituting the creator for the created is idolatry. It's the essence of sin that Paul says in Romans 1, sort of the purest form of sin. All sin, in a, in a way, is a form of idolatry in idolizing ourself. In Romans 1, 21 to 23, Paul says, for the state of mankind, for all the, the world out there, he said, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they came futile, became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. And so all of this can be stated a lot of different ways. There's a lot of ways that you can say this. You can say we exchange the immortal for the mortal. You can say the creator for the created. You can say we, we remove God from the center and put ourselves at the center in the place of God. You can say that our desire is not for God. Rather, we crave the things of the world. And so a simple question that we can sort of stop and ask ourselves is, is what do we crave? What do we put up in the place of God in terms of desire or in order to save us? What are the things that we're craving in the world besides God? And all of this is idolatry. It doesn't matter how you state it. All these different ways are ways of taking God out of the center and putting us or putting the world at the center. And so therefore, Paul basically then applies it to the literal form of idolatry that's taking place in Corinth. And uh, even though he's expressed uh, idolatry in terms of selfish consumption and immorality and grumbling against God and craving the created after the creator... Paul's application to be culturally relevant to Corinth is actual idol worship and showing the Corinthians that then when they participate in this idol worship, they're, they're in the same category as Israel, that they're going out and they're feasting and they're indulging and they are, um, you know, participating in activities that's focused on themselves rather than focused on God. And so Paul's heart is breaking here, and Paul just wants to give him a simple answer. And so he does in verse 14. He just says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Okay, this is the bottom line. You ask me a question about idolatry. You ask me a question about meat. You ask me, you know, what should you do when you go over to a friend's house, and, you know, they've got whatever. And you've asked me all these questions, but here's the bottom line. You've asked me about idolatry, and he says, flee from it. Paul's desire is that the church see how their engagement with this culture, this pagan culture that is outside of them, is idolatrous. And so he says, he says, I speak to you as sensible people. Paul says, you're smart, you can figure this out. Like, think about it. You know, follow along with my logic and see whether this doesn't make sense. Whether there isn't an alternative to idolatry that makes sense for Christians. And what's the alternative that Paul puts forth? He says, instead of engaging in this pagan culture out there, instead of engaging in all this idolatry and putting all these other things before God, here's where he says you should go. He grounds his answer back into the cornerstone of Jesus. And his answer to the Corinthians, his alternative to participation in idolatry is participation in the body and the fellowship of Christ. And this is the encouragement for us. Paul is saying, flee that, but don't flee it to nothing, Flee it to come back to the body and the fellowship of Christ. It's interesting what Paul holds up here. He's talking about communion, right? He says, aren't you all part of Christ now? Isn't isn't the cup that we drink the cup of Christ? Isn't the bread the participation in the fellowship of the body of Christ? Right? Isn't it just like Israel when they all gathered for the sacrifices at the temple and all of the nation was gathered there to worship God and in fellowship with each other? 
And so Paul is holding up the fellowship of the communion and the body of Christ and the church together in contrast to the pagan idol feast. And I'm talking about this sort of theologically, but I'm talking about it practically. Paul is saying, don't don't go out to the feast. What are you doing at the temple of Apollo? Be at the church. Be at communion. Be at the love feasts of Christians. Be sharing at the table one and another together as Christians. Don't go out and participate in the pagan culture. Participate in the church. Participate in Christian fellowship. And he goes on to say, if we are participants in Christ, then how can we indulge in evil? If Christ is our cornerstone, how can we fit any other stones to Christ that don't line up with Christ? How can you participate in those pagan things and that self-serving life and that self-indulgence when it doesn't line up with any of the cornerstones I've been laying for you? Where is purity in that? Where is love in that? Where is your covenant with Christ? Where is humility? Where is grace? Those cornerstones don't line up. And so Paul says, as an alternative to idolatry, he says, participate in Christ. Participate in the church. Participate in the fellowship of other Christians. And Paul goes on to say, in this case, in terms of actual literal idol worship, and it would be true in the things we engage in our culture as well, he says, this is even a doorway to demon worship. Do I think a stone is anything? Do I think a carved piece of wood is anything? No. But for the people that are serving there, they're opening themselves up to demon worship even. To influences that they have no idea what they're getting into. And so we can ask ourselves the same question. We can bring this forward 2,000 years and ask ourselves the same question. Of all those things that God explained are idolatry, then where is the idolatry in our culture? What is the application to us at Lakeside? What are we participating in that can't coexist with Christ? What are we pursuing as an alternative to God? In what ways are we setting ourselves at the center and saying, we know better? So what's our selfish appetite? What's our feasting and drinking? Well, literally, it could be feasting and drinking. For some people, you know, you turn on the TV and they have all those cooking shows on, you know, and it's all about food, and you watch those, you know, you watch one, and then it's like, oh, I'll watch the next one, I'll watch the next one, yeah, I'll watch the next one. You know, three hours later, you've just been watching people eat for three hours, making yourself hungry. But literally, eating and drinking can become a god. It can become what you serve. But more practical in our time is just consumerism, right? These feasts were all about self-indulgence, right? Our god, the pagan culture that we live in, is not Corinth with the temples. It's Walmarts and... Uh, you know, The Gap and, you know, Best Buy and Future Shop, that, those are our temples. And it's just consume, 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 right? Or body worship or body image and sensuality, right? Our pursuit, the thing that we desire the most is to look a certain way or to be dating a person that looks a certain way or be married to a person that looks a certain way. You know, if we're too lazy to look that good ourselves. (laughs) But there's this idol worship out there there's this pursuit of image right you don't have to flip through too many magazines to know that our culture idolizes image putting your own pleasure ahead of everything else or just opulence these are all selfish appetites this is the sitting down to eat and drink and then rising to play it's idolatry because we put it before god We can go through our week, many of us can, even I can. I can go through my week and realize a few days down the road that I have not thought of God any more than I've thought of, whatever, the furniture in my living room, you know, and what I need to get next for my house, and, 
You know, wouldn't that carpet look great in there? Or, man, I'd really like a new lazy boy. It's so easy to put our self-indulgence ahead of God and not realize it. What is our idolatry in terms of testing Christ or our rebellion against his sovereignty? Well, just grumbling self-will, setting our own will ahead of God's, basically making self-serving decisions, any resentfulness that we have toward God for our circumstances. And this is different than seeking relief or crying out to God, you know, to rescue us from our circumstances. You know, God listens to those who are lowly of heart and are poor in spirit, and, and he wants to bring relief. But this is an anger or a bitterness or a resentfulness to God that says, uh, my idea for my life is better than yours, God. That's idolatry. And we can get ourselves trapped there where we think that God has made mistakes with us and that we need to, you know, we would do a better job with our life. That's idolatry. Or what do we crave more than God? Or what are we putting our hope in? Craving anything else ahead of God or putting our hope in anything else ahead of God in the world instead of in the created instead of the creator is idolatry. So in in our culture, what are those things that we put ahead of God or what are those things we put our hope in or that we crave, right? I was talking about this with someone this week, like hockey can do it. You know, there are kids going into hockey at, you know, age 8, age 9, 10, 11. They start to hit 11, 12, 13. Hockey is everything. You know, their hope is in the NHL. And if they don't get to the NHL, it just happened in Michigan, didn't it? Kid committed suicide when he got cut. Their hope is in hockey, not in God. Or here's a big one. What about families, right? Our children. Our hope is in our children. If my kids turn out right, then I've succeeded. You know, I'm validated because my kids are good, you know? Or I have a happy household, or my marriage is good. And so therefore... You know, I have this sort of self-actualization and there's hope in my life because my family is successful. Or it could be knowledge, it could be learning, it could be work, it could even be social justice or environmentalism. It could just be anything that we have in our life that we put our hope in ahead of God that serves us better than God. Or wealth, you know, or body image. There are all these different ways, these different things that we crave that we can put ahead of God. And the interesting thing is, and I'll finish on this, is that Campus for Christ, um, uh, Power to Change, I guess they are, now they keep changing their name. (laughs) Campus Crusade for Christ, which became Campus for Christ, which became Power to Change. Um, Power to Change had this campaign going on, asking students what they craved. And they they would have this survey, four or five simple things of what they craved. And the end result of it is that people were seeking essentially, redemption. People were seeking a way to say, I have purpose. I have meaning. My life is purposeful. I am redeemed through this thing. I'm redeemed if somebody loves me unconditionally. I am redeemed if my work is successful. I am redeemed uh, if I have power and control over my life. But the reality is is that all of these things that people are seeking, that people are craving, all these things in the world that are the created and not the creator, they all fail in the end. They will not save you. You will not be saved by your family. You will not be saved by your environmentalism. You will not be saved by social justice. You will not be saved by the work that you do to save the whales. You will not be saved, you know, even my work as a minister or Leanne's at Joe's place. That's not going to save us. That's not our redemption. We're not going to be saved by those things. 
We're only going to be saved by a hope in Jesus Christ. We're only going to be saved if the cornerstone is Jesus. If everything in our life has him at the center. If everything in our life is directed at God. And bringing glory to him. We have to worship the creator and not the created. Not to pursue selfish appetites. Not setting our hearts on our house or our home or our furnishings or our wealth or our portfolio. Not setting our hearts on the fun that we can have or the things that we can pursue with the world. Not putting our hope in ourselves or our own wisdom. Not rebelling against God's goodness. Not taken in by any of the distractions of the world. Paul's answer to idolatry is, aren't you participants in Christ? Aren't you part of the body of Christ? Don't be distracted by all that idolatry. Don't put anything else up in the place of God. Examine yourselves in any of these different areas of what might become the idol in your life, of what might be taking your eye off of God and taking your eye off of Jesus and bring it back to Jesus. What is in there? I don't know. What are we worshiping? Different things at different times. But none of those things will redeem us. Only Christ will. So that's what I would ask as I close now. That uh, I'll just pray. And as I'm praying, you'll just think about that. You'll think through your life, even just the past week, or maybe the past year, and think about, what is it that's self-indulgent? What is it that I am craving more than God? What is it that I am pinning my hopes in more than God? Because if it's self-indulgence, if I'm putting my hope in something, if I'm craving anything, if I'm ordering my life around anything other than Jesus Christ, Paul says that's idolatry. And we're to flee idolatry. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that uh, (laughs) as much as I try very hard every time I preach to find the encouragement, Lord, Lord, let us just be encouraged uh, that we have this time of fellowship together, that we can examine our hearts, that Christ is our cornerstone, that where we have put anything ahead of him, where we have put you in the back seat, where we have rebelled against you or grumbled or complained and thought we had a better plan for our life than you, Lord, that we can come right now to your cross and lay that down. Father, idolatry is so slippery and sneaky. It just gets into our life. And we find ourselves worshiping things that we didn't even realize or putting our hopes in things that we didn't even realize when they really should be in you. And so, Lord, the encouragement here is the same encouragement I think the Apostle Paul had for the Corinthians. The burden here and the the prayer here is the same prayer that Paul had for his church in Corinth. That they would be sensible people, that they would see what he's saying, that they would have their eyes open, that they would understand what he understands in his teaching is that we're part of Christ. You're our center. Father, just open our hearts and open our minds to the things that we are putting in place of you. And thank you for your son Jesus and his forgiveness. Help us to repent, Lord, to ask for that forgiveness, to put you back in the center. Father, we don't want anything to detract from your glory. And we don't want to presume that our simple wisdom is, should be running our lives. We give you thanks for everything.
Thank you for this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.